It's December 8th, 2023, and this is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. Thank you for joining the podcast. You know, this podcast is brought to you by Room Now Live 2024. It's fast approaching January 27th and 28th. It's going to be in Dallas, Texas, a mere five minutes from the airport. Great location at the Westin Hotel. This meeting is co-hosted by myself and Artie Cavanaugh. We think it's the best meeting in rheumatology. We hope that you'll attend. You know, I look at this this week's podcast, I'm sort of amazed at how multidisciplinary rheumatologists are. Today we're going to talk about where rheumatology intersects with cancer, with uh, obesity and bariatric sur- sur- surgery, with um, uh, neurologic diseases, with vasculitis, with pain, um, epidemiology, and we're going to begin with reports from the derm world, uh, specifically two reports from this week's JAMA Dermatology uh, on topics uh, uh, that we kind of see. The first one is palmoplantar pustulosis. This is a difficult subset of patients. Even their derms break out in hives when they get patients with this because, you know, they have got great therapies for psoriasis, do they not? But these are kind of resistant. We have some indication. Actually, we heard last year at Room Now Live from Ken Gordon telling us that the scoop was that jack inhibitors look really, really good at treating palmoplantar pustulosis. And better, again, there are no studies head-to-head and whatnot, but the consensus opinion from uncontrolled observations was that jack inhibitors look to be better than, for instance, TNF inhibitors and maybe even, um, you know, 1223 uh, inhibitors, but nonetheless, I, this week's report actually talks about 21 patients who were treated with open-label bimikizumab, the new IL-17AF inhibitor, uh, and 17 out of the 21 had complete clearance of palmoplantar pustulosis in as little as four one month and as much as four months. Some of those patients had SAFO, and they did very well with complete clearance of skin and improve joint symptoms. So I think that's encouraging until we can get a good study on this, and those are hard patients to study. There aren't as many of them. Um, we're left with anecdotalism, are we not? Or, you know, and sometimes the best thing you can, the worst thing you can do is go by anecdotes, uh, or even worse, go, go by, you know, large cohort registries that compile data that's observational. So we really do need clinical trials here, do we not? Another uh, report from JAMA Derm talked about the incidence of paradoxical reactions with uh, biologics. Now, we are very familiar with paradoxical psoriasis in patients getting TNF inhibitors. And then they've also had paradoxical colitis and sarcoidosis and eye disease. Well, in this particular report of almost 14,000 psoriasis patients on biologics, they found a 1% risk of paradoxical eczema. Now you're irritated. Why am I bothering you with a 1% risk of eczema, which you couldn't tell from a sunburn? Uh, well, you need to know, because your patients may find this. And I find these this kind of report interesting but bothersome because, A, it comes from the derm world, where they're likely to see derm things, more so than you and I. Second, patients with skin disorders get more skin disorders. So is this real or imaginary? The risk factors here were age and having a prior history of atopic disease. Well, they already had 
atopic disease. Anyway, 1% risk. This was um, lowest with the IL-23 inhibitors, um, 0.56 events per 100,000 patient years. Higher with IL-17 inhibitors, 1.2 per 100,000 patient years. Um, maybe you're turning off this podcast at this point. Wait, stick in there. There's more, uh, including um, the next two I think you're going to love. Um, PLOS1 is a journal, online journal. They published the results of a systematic review, only three studies. But nonetheless, a consistent story. 6,700 RA patients undergoing bariatric surgery or not. And when they looked at disease activity, they showed a significant reduction in disease activity at 12 months with bariatric surgery um, compared to those who didn't. And it dropped by over 55%. Um, Same thing for um, reduced comorbidities, dropped by 55%. Turns out that BMI at baseline um, and the BMI after bariatric surgery was significantly reduced. It went down from a 43% to a um, almost less than 30. So that was a significant weight drop in this 12-month analysis. Now, really, the question, of course, is with bariatric surgery, is are, are, are the sleeves better than the, you know, the Ruin-Ys and the, and the other types of surgery you can do? Uh, and does it last? That's Those are the big questions I always have with this. I think patients who are morbidly obese, it gets in the way of drug choices, drug responsiveness, outcomes, all kinds of things, and sometimes that may be a smart choice. And this data would suggest it. Um, there isn't a lot of good studies that actually have, have looked at this. But this is 6,700 patients. I think that's uh, important. Uh, another study coming from a registry in Kuwait looked at the relationship between RA activity and uric acid levels. Now, you know there's an inverse relationship, right, between RA and gout. So it's sort of like, you know, if, if, you're, if your peer primary care is confused, tell them to look at the rheumatoid factor, look at the uric acid and figure it out that way. Because you don't usually get both. Uh, and this study kind of confirms that because they had this very large cohort, uh, a thousand plus RA patients who had um, measurements for uric acid. And in that cohort, 15% had high uric acids. If you had, if you looked at the relationship between uric acid level and disease activity as measured by DASH-28, it was a significant inverse relationship with um, a p-value of 0.3, uh, odds ratio 1.39, meaning if you had a high uric acid, you were likely to be in low disease activity state or in remission. Nonetheless, even though that high disease activity was always seen with low uric acids or the inverse, um, high uh, uric acid levels were associated with higher hack scores. So maybe whatever's driving that, I mean, they didn't talk about whether there was an incidence of background gout here or not. That wasn't in the study. I imagine it wasn't collected as part of the registry. But it does support the idea that you often cannot, will not see gout in association with RA, although you and I, Um, are the exceptions. We've seen these cases uh, and sometimes have to manage them. Uh, A report from, two good reports on fibromyalgia that you really need to take note of. One comes from arthritis and rheumatology. A randomized controlled trial of cognitive behavioral therapy was done, 114 fibromyalgia patients. uh, And you know what? It didn't really do all that much. Oh, wait. No, it did. Uh, Significant reduction in pain pain catastrophizing, uh, pain 
interference. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, and also improved function. This was a, had a neuroimaging component. And they showed that, that when cognitive behavioral therapy was done and, uh, in, 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 and 98 of the 114 had neuroimaging, they showed comparable improvement in brain imaging in the certain areas of the brain associated with these particular um, measures of pain, catastrophizing, etc. So it gives you a nice sort of ana uh, uh, physiologic and anatomic correlate to the psychologic intervention, which we know does work in fibromyalgia. So CBT, we probably don't use enough of it. You should probably work hard at finding who does CBT for fibromyalgia in where, where you practice. So that's good. That works. You know what doesn't work? Naltrexone. I don't know if you're getting these uh, requests um, for naltrexone in our patients, and not just in fibromyalgia. There's a lot of voodoo going on about naltrexone. It's being, I guess, promulgated by pain specialists. I'm not really too certain about this, but this was a, uh, a, a placebo-controlled blinded trial of 99 fibromyalgia patients. I think it was a two-to-one randomization. Uh, pain decreased 1.3 points on naltrexone and uh, zero, only 0 0.9 on placebo, and that was not significant. Um, discontinuation rates were 6 to 8%, not different between the two of them. Uh, they did suggest that maybe those on naltrexone may improve their memory problems. And, uh, and again, I, I don't think there was a, uh, that was not an intentional, um, extensive part of their investigation. My interpretation of that is maybe naltrexone improves the sleep. Um, while it may help pain in a few people. But anyway, they, it was not significant. It wasn't a primary endpoint. Uh, it certainly would not be enough for me to use naltrexone uh, in patients with fibromyalgia. And, and the ones, frankly, who've come to me asking for naltrexone, I say, I don't prescribe it. I send patients to the pain doctors and let them play with that because um, I am unaware of its efficacy. And now you are aware of its lack of efficacy. Uh, I like this report about um, the epidemiology of rare diseases in Poland. Um, so in Poland, they found uh, in their uh, population, 78,000 patients with sarcoidosis, uh, 3,300 with Stills disease, 35.5 thousand with systemic sclerosis. In a study of patients between 2009 and 2018, which do you think had more hospitalizations between sarcoid, stills, and uh, systemic sclerosis? Well, the lowest was sarcoidosis at 5.4 um, days per, uh, per, I guess, per year. Um, next, in the middle, was 6.2 scleroderma. And most likely to be... Um, hospitalized was Stills disease 7.44. Again, that's the annual um, average per, I guess, for the patient group. Um, and what's, what's my take on this? My take on this is that, you know, my job is to keep my patients out of the hospital. So if, if scleroderma is managed by, by me, it's not going to end up in the hospital. If sarcoid is managed by me or a lung doctor, it's probably not going to end up in the hospital. Stills disease ends up getting managed by everybody but you until the diagnosis is made. So they often end up in the hospital. And I think that that's what is being reflected here. Interestingly, in 2008, 
the stills uh, hospitalization rate was almost 12 and it went down to 5.8 by 2014. So obviously better awareness has, has resulted in less hospitalizations. You're certainly aware of the difficult to treat RA rules and guidelines uh, and definitions set up by ULAR and that has resulted in new research um, that's going to investigate uh, you know, what characterizes difficult to treat RA and how to best treat those patients. This is now being extended to other disorders, including psoriatic arthritis. And now in this report, patients with axial spondyloarthritis. So in a study of 311 axial spondyloarthritis patients, 88 were characterized as difficult to treat AXPA. They said that then a definition they kind of lifted from ULAR and RA, it was failure of two or more biologic or targeted synthetic DMARDs. They said you had very difficult to treat if you achieved that endpoint within two years of therapy. So what they found was that the difficult to treat AXPA patients had more peripheral arthritis, 35% versus 21%. They had higher BASDI score, not gigantically, so 64 versus 59. And they certainly had more fibromyalgia, and that seems to be a common denominator across many of these difficult-to-treat studies. Interestingly, the very fast difficult-to-treat patients had more CRP, more IBD, and no fibromyalgia. So getting there quickly with bad disease, you should, I guess you should be looking for IBD, especially if they have a high CRP. The Alzheimer's disease published this um, just recently in their last issue, the results of the 2023 um, ULAR uh, PMR referral guidelines. This comes from the International um, GCA and PMR study group. This was, uh, you know, they got a consensus task force they came together, an iterative process. They came up with uh, two overarching statements and five guideline recommendations. The guidelines for recommendations are number one, if the patients are suspected or diagnosed with um, uh, PMR, that the doctor doing that should consider a rheumatologic referral and evaluation. Second, that those who are diagnosing um, PMR should do a full history, physical, and laboratory evaluation and then refer the patient to expedite the referral process and to help the patient along. Three, patients um, with severe PMR symptoms should be considered for rapid access clinics. Rapid access PMR clinics um, do exist in the UK and in several areas throughout the EU that I'm aware of. They are very, they're basically they're, they're dedicated clinics um, where it's easier to get in because there's a significant problem with PMR referrals getting into um, a rheumatologist worldwide. Uh, this is sort of uh, takes care of that problem, except there's just not enough of them. And this, this, this practice or this kind of concept hasn't caught on here in the United States. I don't believe it exists in Canada. Um, four is that um, if you are seeing a patient, uh, you should defer and you, and, you're, and you think they have a, a, um, PMR, it's best to defer the um, use of steroids uh, especially if you can get them into a rapid access clinic. If you can't get them into a rapid access clinic, then obviously you have to go ahead and treat and then refer and then work on getting them seen as soon as possible. The last guideline was that a PMR patient who has a good response to steroids 
um, and is stable and well controlled can be managed by and referred back to the primary care physician uh, and does not need to be managed by the rheumatologist. We can't manage, you know, uh, in the United States, there's either 200 or 800,000 PMR patients. We can't manage all of them. Uh, and we're going to need to have a cooperation like what goes on in England in the co-management of PMR patients. This week, I was interested in, uh, again, the hepatitis C story, uh, sorry, hepatitis B story, and whether or not you're going to get reactivation. If you use a biologic, I'm going to remind you that um, you assess the hepatitis B serologies uh, and, uh, you know, active infection or patients who are hepatitis B surface antigen positive. And the rest is sort of meaningless if they're surface antigen positive. You don't want to give those patients biologics. You want to treat the active um, hep, hep B infection and, um, and then when they're controlled, then you can do what you need to do. A resolved infection are those who are B surface antigen negative, but core antibody positive. And then the key decision is whether or not they have surface antibody. If you vaccinate them, they're going to have surface antibody. If they've been exposed, they may have surface antibody. So patient who's B surface antigen negative, core antibody positive, that's a resolved infection. And if they're B surface antibody positive, they're, they're sort of immune and unlikely to reactivate. If they are B surface antibody negative, there is the chance that they could reactivate. Um, if patients who are, um, uh, again, B surface antigen negative, core antibody positive, and B surface antibody negative, they, it could be a number of things, right? It doesn't have to be, it can't, it could be resolved infection. It could be a cult infection that's more likely to, in fact, reactivate. And, and, pay, and another category called chronic hepatitis. Um, so again, I think the point of this is you need to worry about patients who are surface antibody negative as far as reactivation. So I did all this in, in uh, as a pretext to the next report that came out of Korea, which basically said, what is the risk of reactivation with a TNF or biologics if you are, again, a resolved infection? B surface antigen negative, core antibody positive, and in their study, B surface antibody positive, uh, B in the rest of the world, and my other reports to you, it's been 2%. And that's kind of a good solid number. It could happen. you got to worry about it. you got to follow LFTs. And, and if you're concerned about it, get the hepatologist involved. But in an endemic area like Korea, much higher rates, their rate of hep B reactivation in 416 patients with that profile of resolved infection was 3.5% at 5 years, 6.1% at 10 years, and 24% at 17 years. So you got to worry, if, especially if they're from an endemic area or you're practicing an endemic area. The last report is, um, when you tweeted about it last week, I didn't write about it because I wanted to see if the literature was going to change. And that was the FDA warning that came about in the last week in November on CAR T-cell therapy. As you know, this is kind of popular right now uh, with the, the great reports from Germany about uh, CAR T-cell therapy in a cohort of lupus patients giving tremendous remission in, in very difficult cases. Um, it's being used maybe in a few other autoimmune diseases, including, and this is CD19, CAR T-cell therapy. It's being used in a few other disorders like the antisynthetase syndrome and being, and being considered for scleroderma, etc. Well, the FDA came out with a warning basically saying that either the uh, BCMA, the B-cell maturation antigen, 
or the CD19-directed um, CAR T-cell therapies has been associated with the occurrence of malignancies. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is um, you know you choose your CAR T-cell therapy uh, and rheumatology, we're choosing CD19 on B-cells. Uh, in oncology, um, the CAR T-cell therapies are being are approved and being used to treat malignancies. And, they, and that's why they use the BCMA, um, directed CAR T cells because that's expressed on normal B cells but also malignant B cells and and they, these these therapies work and they have like five approved therapies um, but they have had reports of CAR T cell lymphomas and so the FDA is investigating this right now they're saying that um, the benefit outweighs the risk but further study is needed uh, these CAR T cell therapies are instrumental in the management of leukemia lymphoma and myeloma, um, and they're largely being used in the worst patients, those who are refractory to otherwise, you know, normal chemotherapies and radiation, etc. Um, we in rheumatology are going to be concerned about this because uh, of its potential use in lupus and other autoimmune disorders. I want you to again know that thus far there are no reports of secondary malignancies with CD19 CAR T cell therapy that I'm aware of, but we're going to watch the literature going forward. So that's it for this week on the podcast. Again, Room Now Live. This is the last week of reduced registration. It's a bargain. Uh, you have until next week, this is December 15th. And if you are registering and you're going to Dallas, as you should, Artie and I would love to meet with you. Um, you get your hotel before January 5th because the rates go up after January 5th. I want to reiterate that this is not just a great rheumatology conference with the, the best of speakers um, and these TED Talks that we do. Um, but this is a great re board review course. I mean, think about it. We are having state-of-the-art lectures and updates in RA, lupus, psoriatic arthritis, axial spondyl arthritis, uh, and vasculitis. We have a lot of TED Talks on myositis and gout and a lot of other things. That, in addition to world-class faculty, now's the time to register for Room Now Live in Dallas, January 27 and 28. Be there. Be square. Have a good week.